Well, good morning. I am Pastor Jay, and I would like to encourage you to open your Bible to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel, first gospel inside our English New Testament. In fact, in most ancient manuscripts, Matthew always comes first. Matthew chapter 5. We are uh, currently in a series entitled Popular Deceptions of Our Day. And we're looking at a number of deceptions that directly contradict the Bible, the Word of God. Deceptions that are ruining lives, that are destroying marriages, that are shattering families and deceiving people. And we've noted that the moral revolution that has been going on in our country for the last several years is moving at an accelerated pace at a moral velocity that is intimidating to a lot of Christians and a lot of people. And that because of the speed of it, you know, we said moral change usually takes decades. It often takes centuries. To see the kind of moral upheaval we have and these earthquakes we've had, moral earthquakes just in the last couple of years, is unprecedented in human history, the speed at which they're moving. The premise of our series all along we've been saying is this. It is actually an act of love, not hate, but love, to expose false beliefs. Now, you can do it in an unkind way. That's not biblical. But in the right way, it is actually an act of love to expose, to wreck false beliefs that are holding people captive and destroying lives. Just to let them go on and not say something is not loving. This weekend, we're coming to a topic that has saturated our culture, is the talk of our culture. We're coming to the whole LGBTQ revolution that has absolutely changed the moral landscape of Western culture and is increasingly changing the landscape outside of Western culture. But I'm going to frame it a little bit differently today because of a newer argument used to support it. I had several people on the way out from the first service say, I've heard that exact argument used in recent times. So here's the argument, here's the deception, and then we're going to fix it, okay? Here it is. The argument is that Jesus himself supports homosexuality because he never mentions it by name or condemns it in the Gospels. Therefore, ergo, he must have supported it. He must have been supportive of it, unlike Paul or Moses who were so graphically against it. This is becoming increasingly popular artic, uh, ar argument, not only in uh, popular writing, but even in academic circles from both those on the left politically and theologically, case in point. Michael Gerson, who attended a very conservative evangelical college right here in Chicago, uh, has been a conservative speechwriter, professes to be a Protestant Christian of some stripe. He's now a columnist for the Washington Post. And in the Washington Post, he is regularly very critical of evangelical Christians. In a recent article, June 13th, entitled How the Gay Rights Movement Found Such Stunning Success, he wrote this using today's deception, today's argument. Quote, Overall support for same-sex marriage among Americans now exceeds 70%. Among religious people, certain questions are growing more insistent. 
why should we assess homosexuality? So in other words, he's asking this question, and he's saying that a lot of young people are asking this question. Why should we assess homosexuality according to Old Testament law? Isn't it possible, he asked, that the Apostle Paul's views on homosexuality reflected the standards of his own time rather than the views of Jesus who never mentioned the topic? Close quote. And again, this is becoming an increasing argument among many. Uh, There's even a whole group now of professing Christians. This was kind of started by Jim Wallace and Tony Campolo several years ago who are wanting to call themselves red-letter Christians. Have you ever heard the phrase? Uh, In fact, it comes from red-letter Bibles. In fact, my blog this month is on red-letter Bibles and the history of them and the pros and the cons. I encourage you to read it. Not right now, but I would encourage you to read it. I really hope today, young people need your attention today. I hope you're not texting. I hope you're listening. This is such an important subject for all of us. But there's a whole subgroup of people now calling themselves red-letter Christians, and this is their argumentation. They say, we need to pay more attention to the red letters because those are the, quote, words of Jesus, and this is by definition, you know, the most important part of the Bible, they argue. And since there's no mention in the red letters of Jesus ever saying anything about homosexuality or same-sex relationships, he must have been okay because if it was really that big a deal, wouldn't it have shown up in the red letters, so to speak? I'm going to answer that shortly. So the question before us, let us be clear. Is it really true Jesus said nothing about homosexuality, nothing about God's design for marriage, and nothing about what God intended for gender and relationships. And it's a topic, friends, let me add on the other side, that needs a lot of compassion. All of us, or most of us, have extended family members or in our own family or ourselves are wrestling with a lot of pain that is involved with this issue. For a lot of us, it's a very personal issue. It's a personal issue in our own family, our own extended family. I'll mention this at the end of the sermon today. It's a personal issue for a lot of us in here. And so there is a great need for both truth and grace on this subject. One of the most, I'm trying not to exaggerate, encouraging phone calls I think I've ever received in ministry It was a number of years ago. I preached a sermon on homosexuality. It was a little different than this one in our church in Michigan. Afterwards, a woman phoned in to the offices uh, the next day or two. She wanted to make sure the receptionist and then my ministry assistant, and by the time I got the phone call, she wanted to make sure we couldn't trace the call. We didn't know who she was uh, by by the phone number and all this, and they assured her, you know, it'll remain private. So when it got to me, she said, do you have any idea who I am? I said, no, I don't. She said, okay, I I want to say two things. I sat in your service Sunday, listened to your sermon. And she said, two things. So immediately I'm braced for, uh uh-oh. She said, number one, thank you for telling the truth and not watering down what the Bible says. And she said, secondly, she said, thank you for being kind about it. And I just did a quiet thank you, Lord, for helping me be kind about it, because there's way too much anger on all sides of the aisle on this. And so we need, I need, you need, we need to approach this grace and truth. Too much grace without the truth, that's not helpful. 
too much truth without the grace, that's not helpful. We need to be people who are grace-filled, truth-filled. And that's how I'm praying we address this today. The only way to move forward in this, this is, I am saying this without apology, is to go to Scripture. This is not about what Jay thinks. This is not about what Joe Biden thinks or Donald Trump or anybody else. This is about what has God said. Doesn't matter what our Supreme Court says or doesn't say or any other court or any other judge or any other political or theological figures. The text must determine. And so I, without apology, come to this today and say this is our final authority. This is where we stand as a church. You may not attend this church. You may not believe all of this. You may not know where you're at spiritually. I know not everyone here is a committed follower of Jesus, but I know a lot of us are. And so my goal today is to show you what Scripture has to say so that I can faithfully, lovingly help you understand where the Bible is coming from, increasingly in a culture that's gone off the rails on so many of these moral issues. So we're going to do two things today. I'm arguing a little differently in this sermon than I have in the past when I've preached on this. I'm doing something a little different up front. First, we're going to look at what Jesus said about all of Scripture. And then secondly, then we're going to look at what Scripture says about homosexuality and same-sex relationships. But first of all, the reason we're going to Matthew 5 is because to address the issue, Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. When people argue that, they're forgetting two very important facts up front. So I want to bring these up. Number one, the term homosexuality, and here I'm just going to say even in English, was only introduced into English from the German by an Austrian psychiatrist back in the 1800s. So it's a new term in the history of the world, in any language, for the most part. It's not a word that existed in Jesus' day. So for, to say that, well, Jesus never mentions homosexuality is, is really an anachronism. It's a mute point. It, the word didn't exist back then. So the issue is, did he address the concept of human sexuality? rather than the word. It wasn't even used, the word homosexual wasn't even used in the Bibles until 1946 in the Revised Standard Version. So before that time, any Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic word referring to same-sex relationships was translated differently than the word homosexual, which only, again, entered English Bibles in the 1940s. The second thing that people forget who argue this that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, is that Jesus was very clear about biblical authority, the extent of biblical authority, and as such, he was very clear about God's blueprint for human sexuality, gender, and marriage. And so it is a significant misnomer to say, well, he never addressed the issue of homosexuality. Nowhere is Jesus' view of Scripture more clear, I think, in such a concise place than in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to read verses 17 through 19. Here's Jesus giving us his view of the Bible. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That was, by the way, Jesus often summed up the whole Hebrew Bible. Sometimes it was divided into law, prophets, and psalms. Often, Writers in the New Testament just called it the Law and the Prophets. So, in other words, this, he's referring to the whole Old Testament. Do not think I've come to abolish the, the, the Law or the Prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, right there, we have a 
principle of Bible interpretation, call it hermeneutics, that Jesus says, I fulfill all the Hebrew Bible. Now, that's your call to believe him. I do. A lot of people here do. And there's a lot of reasons to believe him. But understand what he's saying here. That's an incredibly extreme claim. That he is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. As the incarnate word of God. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or a dot. Now, those words are translated differently in English translations. Some translate... Uh, those, and I'll, I'll get into that in just a minute. Some translate that, you know, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen or a jot or a tittle, depending on how you, but not one iota or dot will pass away until all the law is accomplished. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, till the end of time, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is entirely accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, a couple things. Number one, least stroke of a pen. I said some, it says here, Iota, that's because that is actually the Greek word used. That's the smallest Greek letter. Some people think he's referring to the smallest Hebrew letter, which is called a yod. Either way, he's referring to the smallest letter either in Greek or Hebrew. So the, the, the accuracy and extent of biblical authority goes down to the smallest letter. Then he says to the smallest dot or the least stroke of a pen. This is mostly like, most likely a serif, S-E-R-I-F, which is just a little part of a Hebrew letter that distinguishes some letters from others. A bait from a cough. So, for example, in English, uh, the difference between a, a small case I or a J is just that little loop at the bottom of the J. That would be, that's what he's talking about here. So, in other words, not one letter or even a part of a letter will fail to be entirely accomplished until the end of time. That is Jesus' view of biblical authority. Bottom line. Young people, hear this. All Scripture, Jesus says, is inspired and authoritative down to the smallest letters and parts of letters. There is no other statement Jesus ever made that is more crisp and clear and pointed that states his absolute conviction that all the Scriptures are the verbally inspired, fully inerrant, fully infallible, authoritative Word of God. And the book of Hebrews tells us, in the last days, God has spoken to us through his son. So here's what all of this means. Right? If you're going to write anything down, write this down. Whenever the Bible speaks, Jesus is speaking. Whenever the Bible speaks, Jesus is speaking. That is a clear teaching in the scriptures. Jesus speaks through his word. The Holy Spirit speaks through his word. And by affirming all the authority of scripture here and even saying it all points to him, Jesus is being very clear that all the scriptures are accurate 
Even when they address issues about male and female, gender, marriage, human sexuality, the whole concept of red-letter Christians is flatly unbiblical. There's no precedence in the Greek text for putting some words in red and some not. Now, is it a helpful thing? Perhaps. But it also, biblically and theologically, can be a dangerous thing because it seems to telegraph, oh, these are the things to pay attention to more than the rest. And if you hear anybody, or if you're ever tempted to think, well, I need to pay more attention to the red letters than the non-red letters, that's an unbiblical, two-tiered view of inspiration that's not supported in the Bible at all. So now this leads to the question we're going to spend the rest of the message on is, since Jesus affirms the absolute authority of all of Scripture, then it begs the question, well, what does the Scripture teach about homosexuality? And there I'm going to ask us to start in Genesis, and we're going to do a very fast tour of Scripture. I hope you have a Bible or a device. I hope you can, you're looking these things up. It is very important we have our finger on the text, and we're looking at what the text says. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. And the reason is too many sermons on homosexuality start in the wrong passage. They try to start in Genesis 19. We'll, we'll, we're going to look at Genesis 19, but this whole conversation really begins in Genesis 1 and 2. And let me say as a qualifier, while you're turning there, a phrase that may shock you. I don't know. They say the job of a preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So here we go. Maybe this will jolt you a bit. The Bible actually encourages same-sex relationships, but not romantic ones or sexual ones. That's the key. The Bible heartily endorses friends of the same gender and relationships of the same gender, but not sexual ones or romantic ones. That's the key. Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to begin there, verse 18. Genesis 2, 18. And you'll notice in the passage that Doug Pearson read for us today in Matthew 19, Jesus took us back to Genesis. We talk about how much of the Christian worldview is rooted in a historic, literal reading of the opening chapters of Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord God, the Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim here, then Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, said it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper who is suitable for him. If you drop down to verse 21, Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God took out of the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then just for the sake of time, if you look at verses 24 and 5, Jesus says, because this is the way God created male and female in the beginning, therefore, this is obviously the conclusion then, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That has to be the groundwork we begin any discussion about gender, marriage, human sexuality. It's centered in Genesis 1 and 2. All right, let's go to Genesis 19. This is one of the passages that often comes up the most when we talk about this issue. Some of you know this story, some of you don't. This is a story of two angels 
that came in the form of men incarnate into an ancient city called Sodom. You say, where's that? Sodom today. The ruins of Sodom, as best we can tell where it was, it's right on the banks of the Dead Sea. So you're less than 20 miles from Jerusalem. Becky and I have been by the, uh, the, the site of ancient Sodom a number of times. So it's in Israel. Two angels came into Sodom one evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the earth. Now, as far as we know, Lot didn't know that these, were, these two men were actually angelic creatures. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. Which, according to verse 3, Lot is suggesting is a really dumb idea. <laughs> and he pressed them strongly. And so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made a feast and he baked unleavened bread and they ate. This is, this is quintessential Middle Eastern hospitality. And it's, it's quite a thing for a Westerner to experience. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. So in other words, this isn't just a couple people. This is the whole city of men. Surround the house, and they called out to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we may know them. Know them. The NIV and other English translations rightly translate this. Bring, this, bring them out that we may have sex with them. Why? Well, a couple comments. The Hebrew word to know there, that we may know them, is frequently used in Genesis for sexual activity. Adam knew his wife. And especially it's determined by the context, and the context is here. They weren't asking them to come out to have a chit-chat or play checkers. They were asking them to bring those men outdoors so they could sexually rape them, in effect. Now, it's interesting that in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, it said this about Sodom. Sodom was arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and the needy, which was all true. Sodom was a derelict place. It was a wicked city, wicked town. And so some are arguing, oh, the sin of Sodom wasn't homosexuality. It was poor hospitality. And I've seen a number, in, even in academic journals, but in popular level books, sin of Sodom had nothing to do with homosexuality. It had everything to do with poor hospitality. Well, there's at least three problems with the idea that poor hospitality was the primary sin uh, that it mentioned here in Genesis 19. Number one, like I said, the Hebrew word to know is frequently used of sexual activity, especially when the context makes it clear like it does here. Number two, in Jude 7, you say, what's Jude 7? Hey, Jude? No, it's not the Beatles song. Hey, Jude. Jude is a book of the Bible. It's actually a very short letter. It's the last book of the Bible before the book of Revelation in our New Testament. And there's only one chapter, so we say Jude 7. So if you want to call it Jude 1, 7. Jude 7 is very clear that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual immorality and perversion. So the New Testament makes it very clear what's going on here. And thirdly, if the primary, primary sin 
of Genesis 19 as some kind of lack of hospitality, why in the world is there burning sulfur that obliterates the two cities? It would certainly speak of overkill for a lack of, just a lack of hospitality. So, rightly so, the history of the church has seen this as homosexuality. Now, some argue, well, it's only speaking about homosexual rape. Certainly is addressing that, but the church, I think, rightly understands this is also condemning homosexuality. And by the way, because the word homosexual is newer in world history, the, the, the word itself, a lot of translations of the Bible, especially in English, if you go back for three, four, five hundred years, use the word sodomite. That was just a common consensus. All right, third passage, Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20. We're just going to look at two verses. Uh, Leviticus 18 to 20 is called the Holiness Code. And there's a number of prohibitions about sexuality in the Holiness Code. I'm just going to read two. And then I'm going to tell you the criticism of reading these and using these. And then I'm going to answer the criticism because I think there's a very good answer to it that you should be aware of. So Leviticus 18.22, Holy Scripture says in the Holiness Code, in the midst of lots of commandments in these chapters about the boundaries of sexuality, verse 22, you will not lie or shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. This is addressed to men, obviously. You are not to lie with another man as with a woman. It's an abomination. And if you go over to chapter 20, Verse 13, this is even more pointed. If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. So if a man lies with another man, as with a woman, meaning sexually, both of them have committed an abomination, and they are to be put to death. So this is a capital crime. Their blood is upon them. Now, I told you I would give you the criticism. Here's the criticism that comes when we cite these verses. The criticism is this. Well, why do you Christians cherry-pick verses from Leviticus about homosexuality, but then ignore other verses in Leviticus about all kinds of other stuff, like rules about touching dead animals or rules about how to prepare food or rules about not eating shrimp or eating pork. You seem to ignore those, but then you want to camp on verses that talk about homosexuality. So the, rule, the, the, the accusation is you guys just cherry-pick stuff that you find agreeable with you and you feel free to toss out the others. Well, okay, here's the answer. We do cherry-pick, but we have a reason for cherry-picking. We have a reason for zeroing in on certain verses in the law and not others. And I'm going to give you the reason. The, the issue is not, do we cherry pick or not? Everybody cherry picks when it comes to Leviticus and some of the uh, uh, Mosaic law. The, the difference is Christians know why they cherry pick and others don't. So here's why Christians cherry pick. Don't, don't, you know, don't cringe from that, that accusation. Own it. Why? Well, let me just, I'm going to make this as simple as I can. According to the Westminster Confession, I think accurately it sums up biblical theology by telling us this. When you look at the Mosaic Law, there are three components to the Mosaic Law. 
Westminster Confession uses the words civil, ceremonial, and moral. The civil laws had to do with how society was run, forgiving debts, how finance operates, not eating some of the dietary laws. It's very clear in the New Testament in numerous passages like Acts 10 that things like the dietary laws no longer apply to God's people. So hermeneutically, biblically, it's very clear that the civil laws no longer are binding on God's people. Then the Westminster Confession, rightly so, looks at Scripture and says, and then you come to something called the ceremonial laws. These had to do specifically with all the sacrificing that went on. And all the things that had to prepare, went into preparing sacrifices correctly and accurately, God was very, very picky about how things were done. Well, it's very clear in passages like Hebrews 10. In fact, Hebrews is a whole sermon on how to interpret things like the ceremonial mosaic laws and that they're abolished today because they're fulfilled in Christ. So very clear in Hebrews 10 that the ceremonial laws don't apply anymore and are not binding, so I say. They're there for principle but not binding. And then the Westminster Confession goes on to talk about the rest of the law we would call the moral law. These are laws dealing with morality And both Jesus and the Apostle Paul, and I think the Westminster Confession rightly so, says these are still binding on Christians. These are passages that were reinforced in Jesus' preaching and in Paul's writing. And very clear, they still are binding on God's people. And that would fall unto Leviticus chapters 18 to 20, 22, this holiness code. So the bottom line is when the accusation is thrown out, well, you guys just cherry pick, the answer is, of course, we cherry pick because certain parts of the Mosaic law don't apply anymore, certain do. Non-Christians also cherry pick. They just don't know why. They love verses. The left, theologically and politically, love verses, good verses like Leviticus 19, 15, do not undermine justice, let it flow, do not show partiality to the poor. Good verse. They love that verse, but they feel free to throw out Leviticus 18 to 22 without even thinking, and they don't know why. It just doesn't fit their worldview. We at least know why we cherry-pick. There's a good biblical reason historically and theologically for doing that. All right, we're turning to now to Matthew 19. We have a couple more passages, and then I want to address four questions at the end of this before we do our baptisms today. Very exciting day. We had four baptisms in the first service. And we have three in today's service, in the second service today. Matthew 19. This was read for us this morning by Doug Pearson. I'm only going to read verses 3 to 6. Here Jesus makes one of his clearest statements in all of his preaching about human sexuality and marriage. Pharisees came to him and tested him. You know what that means? They're playing gotcha with him. By asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any and every cause? Well, they knew that it wasn't. All they're trying to do is trap him. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them, what? Male and female. Where does that come from? Genesis. And now reaching again into Genesis, and he said, therefore a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus is reaching back to Genesis. He is making a very clear statement here about human sexuality, gender, and marriage. Where the scriptures speak, Jesus speaks. 
Jesus did address human sexuality. He didn't use the word homosexuality. It did not exist in his day, but he was extremely clear about human sexuality and God's plan, blueprint, pattern, and paradigm. He couldn't have been any clearer. All right, two more. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Here we come to what people on all sides of this issue admit is the clearest and most damning paragraph about homosexuality or section. Paul condemns homosexuality here without any qualifiers. And it's the only time lesbianism is mentioned in the Bible by direct reference. Romans 1, verses 24 and following. If you're newer to the Bible, Romans 1 to 3 is the most extended and graphic section in the Bible, three full chapters on human sin, wickedness, and depravity. It's, a, it's very important for biblical theology, but you, you, you sort of got to take it in small doses. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. Verses 24 to 27. Therefore, God gave them up. He's talking about people who are rebelling against God, cultures rebelling against God. So God gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is ever, forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Would you look at verse 26? Young people, please look at verse 26. Contrary to nature. That's what these sexual relations are described as. This goes back again to creation, to the order that God set up in the moral universe. Both homosexuality, male and female, is contrary to na nature. Now, here's what's interesting I've found in the academic literature, even in the popular literature in the last couple decades, how many on the theological left, even the political left, are, but especially theological left. These would be liberal biblical scholars. You say, what? What's a liberal biblical scholar? There's a, you should know there's a lot of biblical scholars, even some at professing Christian colleges, that are pretty liberal. And then if you go to places like Harvard Divinity School or Yale Divinity School or Duke Divinity School or University of Michigan, which has a theological, uh, a, uh, a religious studies department, you will find New and Old Testament scholars, Greek and Hebrew scholars, that are outright atheist and very hostile to the text. What's interesting is you dip into the academic literature in the last couple of decades, how many on the theological left are now admitting that Romans 1 in particular is condemning all same-sex 
sexual activity. Very interesting. I'm going to only quote two here. Dan Via, V-I-A, is an is a emeritus professor of New Testament at Duke University. So he's a, he was a tenured New Testament prof. He's now emeritus. And he writes this. God did condemn same-sex relationships in Romans 1, and he says he does it without qualification. And then Dr. Villa goes on and says, and Paul was just wrong. You'd be shocked walking into liberal seminaries today, some liberal colleges, even some professing evangelical colleges, to see scholars arguing this way. I had a person in first service talk to me about a Christian college in Michigan that one of their kids were at, and she was shocked at some of the outright hostile arguments used in the classroom against biblical authority at this school. I told her I wasn't shocked because I read the professors coming from there. I know that. Luke Timothy Johnson is currently professor of New Testament at Emory University. Now, Emory University historically is a religious school affiliated with one of the major religious denominations in America, Protestant denomination. Luke Timothy Johnson writes this about Romans 1. Quote, it's important to state clearly that we do in fact reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. You got to give them credit for just being honest. We do think, he says, we do in fact reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. We appeal, hear this, to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience. Close quote. What he is arguing there is deadly, demonic, and toxic. There's no other way to say it. He just simply says, yeah, the Bible condemns all same-sex relationships pretty much categorically. Who cares? We appeal to our own experience. Ladies and gentlemen, that is demonic. That is satanic. The bottom line is Romans ch one, chapter 1, verses 24, down to the end of the chapter, verse 32. What he's doing here is Paul is describing the downward spiral, I've addressed this before, of sin and destruction both individually but especially as a culture. Three times, if you look at verses 24 down to verse 28, three times, Paul writes, God gave them over in their behavior, and then he shows us this downward spiral. So, for example, he says the first step down the path of depravity and destruction is when a culture tolerates sexual sin. That's in verse 24. The next step is when there is an open toleration of homosexual behavior. That's in verses 26 and 7. The final step is celebration of homosexuality, sin, and perversion. Verse 32, which does not bode well for America and Western culture. We have pride parades, and we're, we're told not only to tolerate, we're told to rejoice and celebrate. We're at, at an advanced stage of judgment according to the biblical timetable. And now 1 Corinthians 6, lastly. 1 Corinthians 6, just two verses, 9 and 10. Paul is going to use four Greek words here to describe 
very specific sexual sins. I'm going to try to keep this as simple as I can. Verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I want to zero in mostly on verse 9, where Paul uses four specific words, very different words in Greek. First word is the Greek word porneia, which is a general term for sexual immorality that covers homosexuality. I don't have time to explain all that, but it does in the Bible. The second word used here is adultery. It's used just the Greek word adultery. That's the second sin being condemned. The third word being condemned is a word that means soft or delicate. So scholars tell us. This is, in, in, in your footnotes at the bottom, it might explain this, but this was typically referred to a male prostitute or the passive homosexual partner. Dr. Preston Sprinkle, who's a New Testament scholar, I'm going to be recommending one of his books here in just a moment. Dr. Preston Sprinkle tells us that the Greek word, one of the Greek words, two Greek words used here, malakos, refers to men who significantly blur gender lines. And then the fourth Greek word used here refers to the active homosexual partner. And it's actually a compound word that means it's two words put together, male and bed. And so the NIV translates this last phrase, men who have sex with men, or the ESV, men who practice homosexuality. So Paul is using two words, putting them together. One of the words, actually, he lives right out of Leviticus, out of the holiness code, one of the words that condemned homosexuality, and puts it in here. Here's, here's what is the point. The bottom line is, verse 9 and 10, the stakes here are incredibly high in verses 9 and 10. Why? Because the Bible is giving us very specific examples of people who will not be in heaven. That's why this is heavy. And we need to make sure we're reading this and taking this seriously. In full agreement with the Old Testament, Paul is once again here telling us God forbids all homosexual behavior. That's why he uses uh, these four different Greek words he's being all-inclusive here. And so he's telling us there are no qualifiers on this. God forbids all homosexual behavior, all same-sex behavior. And he goes on to say that any who practice this stuff unrepentant will not inherit the kingdom of God. To be fair, same with unrepentant greeds, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. Now, that doesn't mean all sin is equal. It's not. The Bible does not teach all sin is equal. But it does say any unrepentant sin is deadly, and if it continues, all it shows is the person doesn't know God. All right, I told you I'm going to close with four questions that need to be addressed. A sermon like this is hard because you have to leave out so much. The question becomes just as much what do you leave out as what you include. The editing floor was a mess this week. <laughs> Even this morning, I spent another hour revising this. I revised it last night, and this is after I'd already printed and highlighted the sermon. There's just so much that nuanced in this, and you, you have to just, parts you have to just leave. So I'm leaving out as much as I'm including today, I don't know, but I'm trying to hit the main key things. Four questions as we close, okay? Number one. 
Is same-sex attraction, the temptation, in other words, automatically sinful or evil? And the answer, I think, biblically is no. The issue is acting on it. Jesus was tempted. Christians face temptation, even godly Christians. The issue is acting on temptation. All the references in Scripture are about homosexual behavior, but all true Christians have to uh, uh, exercise restraint. We face all kinds of impulses and urges that would lead us in horrible directions. And so the issue is not, do I have an urge or an impulse towards anger or drunkenness or homosexual behavior or heterosexual behavior or towards adultery or bitterness or stealing or lying. We have all sorts of sinful urges. The, the issue for the God-centered, spirit-filled Christian is in the power of Christ in leaning into our union with Christ, <laughs> resisting the behavior that that temptation leads to. But just automatically having a temptation is not in and of itself necessarily sin. It's acting on it. Just an important distinction. Two, well, aren't some born of same-sex attraction? The answer is, I don't think so, but let me say this. Even if they are, that's not the point. We live on a fallen planet. People are born with all sorts of disorders, mentally, physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually. Just because something, someone's born with a, with a disorder doesn't mean that we celebrate it. We live on a fallen planet that is a dangerous planet. It's ravaged with disease. It's ravaged with disorders. The key is this. The only hope for any sinner is the gospel. The only hope for forgiveness and power for living is the gospel, not taking the commands of God and manipulating them so I can somehow feel better about my lifestyle. That's deadly. Third question. How should Christians interact with LGBTQ people? And the answer here is very simple, with compassion, with truth. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a great paradigm for this. How to interact with someone, perhaps, that is very different than us. And it's a topic that needs, like I said up front, a lot of compassion. Friends, we, the church of Christ has to be compassionate on this. But better not back down on the truthfulness of it either. It's important to acknowledge this is very personal. I have three cousins that are homosexuals. Well, two now. One was a seminary educated and a pastor, and he left his wife. He left his church. He left Christ. He left the faith. He went to San Francisco, joined the gay community, and sadly died of AIDS. But I have two left that are homosexuals, very flamboyant. Two cousins I love. I know well. This is a very personal issue for a lot of us. The issue is not, do I love these people? The issue is, what has God said? And God is not telling us to go around and just bless everybody's sinful behavior, no matter what it is. Gluttony, drunkenness, adultery, any, or homosexuality. We are called to be people of grace and truth. And lastly, what if I do feel hopeless about my situation? Remember, Something very important, pastorally, no matter what you're struggling with today, homosexuality, eating disorders, substance abuse, lying, bitterness, the Bible says if anybody will repent and believe the gospel, they're new creatures in Christ. They are forgiven. And it doesn't mean that I'm never going to struggle with sinful urges or wrong desires or cravings, but it does mean God will draw near. And it does mean he will give us his Holy Spirit and be our rock and keep his promises. And that is where gospel hope comes in.
Amen? That is why this is such an important issue. Two books I would recommend highly. One, Kevin DeYoung. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? It's clear, it's concise, it is accurate, it's good exegesis in biblical theology. Secondly, I said, mentioned Dr. Preston Sprinkle, PhD, University of Aberdeen, New Testament scholar, people to be loved, very good. And I would encourage you, read both of these, get both of these. They come at it a little bit from two different angles, but both of them are very good treatments of this topic. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Our baptism candidates are going to get set up. We will run just a bit late. That's okay. You're going to hear some couple great stories. We have three people we're baptizing, and then we will end our service. Father, thank you for giving us a book that tells us the truth even when we don't like it about our sin. And we all have things we wrestle with. As we now get ready to hear some people who have professed faith in Jesus and are getting baptized in obedience, may this just be the seal, capstone of a service centered in you. We love you, and may Jesus shine brightly in these baptisms. In Christ's name, amen.